studio on this floor, Jay. First floor. Not second floor. Really? Hold on, I can be wrong. Hold on, now you got me thinking. You are wrong, you are wrong. Apologies. We can hear you, Thank you. There's the living room again. I remember now. Mike check. Oh, it's good to be back in the old podcast seat. My name is Peter Perrett, and this is Cube Presents The Making Of. Hello, listener, and welcome once more to Cube Presents The Making Of. I am Ted Kessler, and my guest this week is Peter Perrett, once the frontman with The Only Ones, and now a living legend in his own right. Peter formed The Only Ones in 1976 in South London. They made three albums of spacey, psychedelic, but very melodic new wave between 78 and 1980, including one of the most memorable songs from that era, Another Girl, Another Planet. But since then, his output has been slow, to say the least. He got lost in a heavy fog of narcotics for the next 30-odd years, with that mist clearing only briefly in 1994 for a short-lived act called The One. There was a brief Only Ones reunion in 2007, when Another Girl, Another Planet got used by Vodafone, but otherwise, nothing much at all. Well, nothing much until 2017 when he released his first solo album, How the West Was Won, with help and motivation from his two sons, Jamie and Peter Jr., who were both former members of Baby Shambles. Now, suddenly after 40-odd years, Peter Perrett is on a roll because his second solo album in just two years has come out. It's called Human World, and I'm very glad that we have Peter here to talk about that and lots more. Peter, how are you? I'm great, you know, and I'm... It's great being a living legend rather than a dead legend at the moment. Yeah, it's always good that. I mean, later on, one day, well, <laughs> regrettably, you'll be a, a dead legend. Oh, yeah, 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 no, I mean, obviously. Better to be a legend than just forgotten. You know, I don't think I'm a legend. I think I'm useless. But uh, if it's pleasant that people yeah. actually refer to me that way. Yeah, it's best if we would describe it as that rather than you describe yourself as a legend. That would be a bit awkward, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> Um, how's your day been so far? What have you been up to this morning? Um, I woke up. Um, I managed to have a shave and some breakfast and <laughs> got into the cab on time. And I was here before the girl from Domino, yeah. which I'm very proud of. You were the first person. Were you the first person here? Uh, yeah, I was. Before even yeah. producer Sue. Yeah. And uh, that is the way I approach my life nowadays. <laughs> I make Get up for early. lost time. Yeah. Excellent. I always used to be late. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah. It's sort of um, satisfying to to be early because it it shows that you appreciate life. Yeah. Do you enjoy the sun? Because it's a sunny day today. I was I th- about yeah, I do enjoy the sun. I don't know if it's good for me, <clears throat> but I used to hate the sun. I never went out in the daytime. I was mm. hardly up in the daytime. Um, and I think old people do enjoy the sun. It revitalizes them and... <laughs> Also, it's easier to walk around when it's sunny mm. and not windy. When it's windy and rainy, it's much harder for, for people of my <laughs> my advanced years. What? Well, well, how's your your routine changed? So you say you wouldn't be up in in at this time of day normally. In the well, I'd, I'd be out, but I wouldn't be out. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'd, but now you're up and about. Yeah, and I go out of the house and engage with the human race, which is rewarding. When did um, circumstances change for you in that respect? Um, 2010, I started, you know, I, like, as you mentioned earlier, there was a brief Only Ones reunion 2007 to 2009. Mm. 
So I used to actually get out of the house then because mm. they used to come and collect me <laughs> and my accoutrements <laughs> and take me to the van, onto the stage, usually on time, and then deposit me back where yeah. they found me. Um, but in 2010, I started getting healthy. And April the 8th, 2011 was the last time I had a smoke of um, joints, nicotine, anything. And right. it's been purely focused on the extension of the lifespan. Excellent. And um, so that involved me getting out of the house and trying to get some exercise. Mm. And yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. After spending 35 years trying to destroy my physical health, <laughs> yeah. I've spent the last few years trying to maintain it. Well, that's good news. Um, I was one, of the, one of the reasons I was wondering about the weather is because I spent a couple of summers selling donuts <laughs> on the beaches of south of France. Yeah. And there was one guy, a French guy, who came from, where did he come from? He came from Orange, actually, or, or Avenue, anyway. He came from there and he was obsessed with your first album, right? And we ended up sharing uh, tents next to each other because we used to camp, I'd camp down there selling donuts. And he was obsessed by it. And every night we'd listen to your first album at night after day selling donuts. <laughs> I've got very strong, my, my association with the only ones is listening to them slightly tripping at night, looking at the Mediterranean Ocean. In the south of France. In the south of France. <clears throat> so I always think of you as almost like a French band, even though obviously you're not <laughs> French at all. Are you a beachy kind of person? Um, you know, when I was, at the time that I made those albums, if I got 20 miles out of London, I would panic. Yeah. You know, I, I thought, you know, if the countryside and open spaces, I used to think, well, what are these for? They're boring. You know, I just wanted to be back in the nightlife of the city. Um, but now, I, you know, I appreciate everything that God made, you know. Not yeah. that I believe in God, obviously. No, but just as, as a figure of speech. Yeah. yeah. Um, and often I was thinking that this morning because I was listening to your records and... Um, your story is often told as one of sort of wasted time, etc. But you met your wife, Zena, when you were teenagers, 51 years ago? 50 and a half years ago. 50 and a half yeah, years we've ago. been married for 49 and a half years. I mean, and, and one of your songs, one of your most recent songs from the, from the album before the, the current one, an epic story goes, um, if I could live my whole life again, I'd choose you, only you. I presume that's about her. Yeah, I mean, is, thankfully. That... <laughs> <laughs> It'd be embarrassing if it wasn't, because like, there are not many songs about her, but that is, no. yeah. But I mean, that's not a wasted life, <laughs> is it? Because that's amazing. Most people, I mean, there are oh, many, no, no, many creative people yeah. who could only dream of a relationship of five, ten years, let yeah. alone 50. Yeah. What would you put that down to? Uh, persistence, no, <laughs> no truth, right? You know, honesty. I think that's the most important thing in a relationship, and a lucky accident. Yeah. You know, we both lost our virginity together. Wow! And I tried hard, but I couldn't find anyone that <laughs> that could uh, satisfy me in all all avenues of life. You know, yeah, that's amazing. What were you like when you met? Because you so you met you when you were sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, yeah, I was sixteen. She just had her eighteenth birthday. Right. Okay. What were you like then as a sixteen? Because you were a bit of a tearaway up to that point, hadn't you been? Uh, yeah, I just got expelled from the second um, school of you know, <laughs> and so I was liberated. You know, I had a lot of free time on my hands because, like, I was normally enrolled at a technical college to finish off my A levels. Right. But no one cared if you turned up, so I had a lot of free time on my hands. Hmm. And um, we, she started not going to school, and we spent from January 1969 till July 1969 <laughs> seeing each other in school time. Right, on the run sort of thing? Or? Well, no, in, so this was before we ran away okay. from home. This was when she was still at school, because we had our A-levels to finish. Oh, she had to finish her A-levels, yeah. right, okay. But she didn't go in, but... Um, yeah, so that's when we got to know each other. And um, I think in, in May 69 was the first time I kissed her. And then she decided that we had to run away because she was Greek and was due to have an arranged marriage. Oh, gosh. And um, so we ran away, um, stayed in an acquaintance's house and lost our virginity as the Americans were landing on the moon. So that was, I think, <laughs> July 69, because everybody else was watching it on television. <laughs> we were occupied with more important things. Fantastic. 
Where did you, where did you, so you ran away to your friend's house? Oh, we ran away from there until Zena's father started finding out from her friends where some of my friends lived and visiting them with a shotgun. And we realized we had to get out of London. And so we started hitchhiking around the country. Right. Sort of sleeping in bus shelters, um, you know, on beaches, you know, just were in fields which were quite cold and wet when you woke up in the morning. Yeah. Um, Still sounds yeah. romantic, doesn't it? Oh, it was romantic <laughs> then. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. I mean, now it'd probably be quite dangerous to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, different times. Yeah. What, had, what had your upbringing been like? You grew up in, you were born in South London. Uh, yeah, I was born in um, King's College Hospital in Camberwell. Uh, spent the four, first four years of my life in Broccoli and then moved to Forest Hill. Mm. Uh, my father had uh, come from West Ham. He was like a, an East Londoner, a working class. And um, it was always important. Education was always important to him because mm. he hadn't had one because his father beat up the teachers <laughs> to stop him from going to school. Um, so he, th- he thought that he'd missed out on life. So... Mm. Like when I showed a modicum of intelligence, he wanted me to take advantage of that, and so I got a scholarship and went to boarding school. And that was the. Where was that? That was in Epping Forest. Oh, okay. And it took me four years to get expelled from there, which was a pain. But eventually, (laughs) I I got relative freedom, and then went to a school called Haberdashers Asks in in New Cross, which was a grammar school. Yeah. Um, guy called Steve Nice, Steve Nice who later became Steve Harley, was there as well. Oh, right, yeah. Um, were you in the same year? He, Yeah, we were in the same class. He was a year older than me, but we were in the same classes because, like, yeah, um, doing A-levels. Um, were and you mates? Like, hmm? Were you friends? Yeah, 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 because, oh, okay. like, he was, like, part... You know, like, I, was, I went there, I sort of... You know, because I'd got freedom from being expelled from boarding school. I'd grown my hair, I'd managed to grow my hair over the summer holidays. So I, when I went there, I had long hair. And he used to hang about with, like, these... There was a few skinheads there. And uh, what we had in common was we both were fanatical about Bob Dylan, but he also liked um, Tamla Motown. Mm. And he had this... And he had a sort of skinhead haircut. I don't know if it was for self-protection or not, <laughs> but he sort of, like, you know... And so I ingratiated myself with them, you know, so that... You know, <laughs> the sort of thing you do. You look who's the danger at any new place you go to, and yeah. like try and protect protect <laughs> yourself from any future. And uh, yeah, but it took me f- um, four terms to get expelled from there. Right. Um, so, what did you got expelled for for the first time? What, how did how did you manage that there at boarding school? Um, the, you know, the t- I d- you know they didn't tell me. You know, they told my friends to, you know, stop hanging about with me because I was a disruptive influence. And, you know, I set fire to a desk. So I just, you know, I just played the fool. Just tried to amuse people. Yeah. You know, I was easily bored. Hmm. Hmm. Set fire to a desk. Was it it a dangerous fire? Was it? No. No. It was was contained within the desk. It didn't spread at all. But I think the teacher thought, Enough is distract- enough. No, it was just <laughs> distracting to the other pupils. Right, yeah. It would, it would make his job harder. <laughs> yeah, desks on fire, it's distraction. When did, so mu- when did music first hove into view for you? What were the first things that really... Not just not the first songs you liked, but when was the thing... Did you think, this is... I want to I write rock songs, I want to write songs. Oh, no, I never thought... I, that was much later, you know. Music became important to me when I was sent to music, uh, to a boarding school which was in 1963. You know, I'd listened to things before, like The Shadows and stuff. But 1963, everyone had the Beatles records. Mm. Um, you know, there's The Kinks. I particularly like The Kinks. Yardbirds, Animals, things like that. Um, 1964, 60... Yeah, 64, was it? Um, Small Faces. Small you know, I became a mod around about 64. And I wanted to look like Steve Marriott. Yeah. With a centre parting. And I still do. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was like a big thing. But it wasn't, it didn't mean everything to me. And it was like in 1965 when I was 13 and I heard Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone mm. that all of a sudden, you know, music meant 
something on a higher level. It spoke to me in a way that was an escape from what I considered to be hell. Um, and from that moment, music was, you know, the best escape I've ever had. Mm. Wow. When did you first witness live music? Live music, that probably it was like the, um, the Windsor Jazz and Blues Festival, it was called. And uh, a precursor, it became the Reading Festival, which right. was like, you know, associated with heavy metal and that. But when it started off, um, I went there to see the small fate. I think it was 66 in Sunbury Racecourse, I right. think. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I went to see the small faces also on the bill with Spencer Davis and um, Gino Washington and the Ram Jam Band. Good stuff. And, you know, but they... You were in a field and you could hardly recognise the songs because their PAs weren't really capable of filling yeah. a field with yeah. music, you know. So you really want to see this inside a small hotel, you know, hotel bar or something. You want to see it in a proper venue, don't you, rather than... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Inside gigs, you know, I, don't, I, yeah. I can understand why people go to festivals, you know, and, yeah, I mean, you know, Glastonbury's just happened, I mean... It's like on a whole different level, you know. I don't know if it's got anything to do with what, with what I think music should be about, but yeah. I mean, we played Glastonbury in '79, and it's like fifteen thousand people and a ramshackle stage. Mm. Um, but it felt like you were giving something to the people because I mean, okay, back then I think they charged money, but when I, you know, in the '60s, festivals were all free. Right. You know, it's about. You know, musicians wanting to play music and giving it to the people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's always seemed something turgid about, you know, just milking people for their money you know, and people spending insane amounts of money on tickets to see bands that they don't even know who they're going to be because they haven't been announced yet. Yeah. It's become like an event rather than, you know, music is just the sideshow, I think, to, to festivals. Mm. This was not a problem, though, in 1967 or 68. Or yeah, 68. no, I mean, you had free festivals every every week in Hyde Park. Mm. You know, it was... Mm. You know, and for me, I could walk from Forest Hill to Hyde Park and back in about two, you know, two or three hours each way, see, some, you know, see a load of great bands for free. Yeah. You know, there was access. Nowadays, you, you know, it's like a whole... It's a different type of person that that can afford the money and go and be hedonistic for a weekend, you know. Mm. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's a dip, this is almost a different podcast here about where the young working class uh, musicians <laughs> are, are necessarily coming from in the future. But let's return to you yeah. and uh, wonder, when did you first think about writing songs yourself? Okay, so um, I, used to, I started writing poetry because I just had words come into my head. Um, when I was at boarding school, when I was like... 14, 15, there was a, a friend who had um, a tape recorder. So I used to make electronic music. Right. And I did that by bashing things and bashing a piano and then turning it back to front. So it was like everything was backwards. And I thought this was really weird. And that's great. very avant garde, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> well, that's all I could do. I couldn't play any instruments. But yeah. I, you know, I liked music enough to, to want to make a racket, you know. Right. And it amused me, and it was like an escape from from school. And, um, you know, I started writing poems, which were like, you know, typical sixth-form poetry, you know, pathetic attempts <laughs> at literacy. Um, and then the one good thing my father did for me was buy me an acoustic guitar for £12 for my birthday in 69. Right. And I quickly learned how to play three chords, and I managed to approximate all Bob Dylan's songs with these three chords because <laughs> like you can you know if, you, if you're not that concerned about playing them exactly right yeah. and that satisfied me for about nine months and then in January 1970 I found myself actually playing chords that weren't a Bob you know <laughs> intending to be a Bob Dylan song they were just chords and a melody came into my head and I wrote a song uh, that later came out as Flowers Die Mm. Um, and then I realised that I got more satisfaction from doing that rather than sitting in a room with a Bob Dylan sing-along. Right. 
So and then you fought, when did you form your first band, the first band was Glory? England's Glory, um, yeah, 1971. Right. And we recorded in December 71, um, 10 tracks, which we actually pressed 25 vinyl copies of. But which you can still hear on Spotify now. Is it on Spotify? <laughs> That's it's on Spotify now. Okay, well, it has been, re- you know, re- I right. don't know where those all those 25 copies are, but it has, <laughs> people have re-released it since then. Yeah. I'm surprised it's on Spotify because, yeah. uh, you know, the Peel Sessions aren't on Spotify and they're much more important. Yeah. Because the Peel Peel Sessions, you know, some of our best stuff was on the Peel Sessions. Right. But I don't know if there's, like, a debate over who owns the rights or, you know. Probably. Uh, At the time, you got some criticism for sounding a bit like Lou Reed. Was was Velvet Underground a big influence? Yeah, Velvet Underground. After Bob Dylan, the Velvet Underground were my second love. Uh, That was September 67, I got their first album. You can't go wrong with those two as your first formative musical loves, though, really, can you? I don't think that... You know, the, there was just... He would vote words that were almost as... Well, not as good as Bob Dylan, but, you know, were good, better than I could write at the time. And it was the sound of the Velvet Underground, because, like, previous to that, I sort of saw the Pink Floyd quite a, a few times, like their psychedelic sound, because mm. 67 was the year of psychedelia. Mm. Um, but when I heard the Verb Underground, it was like a much darker, dissonant, mm. everything about it just seemed much more dangerous. And, um, you know, as a 15-year-old, that's what you're looking for. You know, you want stuff to really upset your parents you know, <laughs> and neighbours and everybody. Yeah. And they tended to do that, you know. Yeah. I was the only person I knew that liked them for quite a long time. But I managed to beat a few friends into submission. You know, it's like a rite of passage. If you wanted to be friends with me, you had to put up with the Velvet Underground. <laughs> I mean, they still, it stands the test of time, though. So it's not just to annoy parents, though, because those, those records all sound really good still. Yeah, yeah, but lots of people hated it. I mean, yeah. when I used to go to a party and put on Sister Ray, people used to beg me to, to <laughs> take it off. They say, you know, after five minutes, they say, how much longer is this going to go on for? Yeah. And the more they they pleaded, and you know, the more satisfaction I got. Well, you say it's a psychedelic era, and those are not psychedelic records. I mean, they're kind of psychedelic. Oh, well, the Velvet Underground. Velvet Underground, yeah. But no, that's not, what I mean. I mean. You know, they were unlike everything else that was going on. Yeah. That's what made them special. Yeah. Were you a psychedelic person? Uh, I didn't take junior? any drugs. I was 15, you know, I didn't take any drugs. Well, you could have done. <clears throat> I could have done, but it would have been very foolhardy at that age. Right. You know, your brain is a precious, precious um, muscle, is it? I think they call it a muscle. I don't know, an organ. I don't know what you call mm. your brain, but it's something that um, is, you know, one of many things that's important to intelligent life. Yeah. Okay. Drug lesson from Pete Perrett here. <laughs> Look after your brain. No, uh, I, I, yeah. you know, I mean, psychedelic drugs, I, you know, I took them, obviously, like when I was, I think... 18 probably was the first time, 17 or 18. Right. And I'd, I have to confess, the first acid trip I had, I enjoyed it. And I laughed for the whole time. And um, the second acid trip, I, I looked for something more in it. And um, everything I encountered was horrific. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. every, I, I, you could probably count the number of acid trips I had in single digits um, because from the moment, five minutes after I took it, I just used to look at my watch mm. trying to work out how many hours I had left to, to go through this tour. You know, like, Very difficult God, 11 task. hours to go, 10 and a half hours to go. You know, it was, hours to it was torture. It was torture. And I came to the conclusion that um, psychedelic drugs weren't mind-expanding, they were mind-distorting. And, uh, you know, I quite liked my mind. I didn't want it distorted and out of control. Mm. And then then I made the mistake a couple of years later, or a few years later, of um, thinking that hard drugs were mighty expanding. <laughs> and they were, you know, they were to a certain extent, but they um, derailed you from your purpose in life. Mm. For quite a long time. Yeah. yeah. How did the only ones come together? 
So this is we've jumped forward about yeah, nineteen seventy-five. Nineteen seventy-five. Yeah. Uh, I used to make demos in um, demo studios just for my own amusement. And um, for one of the demos, someone recommended John Perry as the bass player because I needed a bass player. I was using a guitarist called um, Glenn Tilbrook, who, who was in oh, yeah, Squeeze. He was the guitar player. How do you know him? Um, Harry Zena's brother, who played in England's Glory, had joined Squeeze. Right. And so that's how I, I met... Um, I, play, I played a gig, a support gig at the Marquee with Glenn, uh, Jules Holland playing keyboards, Harry playing bass, and their first drummer playing drums. Right. Um, so that was around the same time. Right. And I did a demo, and that's when I met John Perry. And he said, like, rather than just doing this for your own amusement, maybe let's you know, form a proper band. Yeah. And so from sort of the summer of 75, we started looking for other musicians Um, and eventually April 76 we found Kelly the drummer who's who's now deceased he died like two years ago and um, August 76 we found um, Alan Mayer the Mm. bass player Mm. and they were different characters yeah everybody was different Yeah. yeah I mean eventually you know We had certain things in common, but yeah, yeah, everybody had like was coming from different backgrounds. Yeah, they, the the three of them had previous experience. Especially Kelly had been in, you know, Kelly had actually played in bands that I'd heard of. So I was like really impressed that <laughs> a proper real musician, you know, wanted to play with me and th- thought mm-hmm. my my songs were great. Yeah, and Alan had been in a band that was like enormous in. The, in Scotland, because Alan came from Glasgow and he was in a band called the Beat Stalkers that, you know, in Scotland were like the Scottish Beatles. Right. You know, they had um, David, a young David Bowie writing songs for them and stuff like that. Right, yeah. But you had songs. You had these amazing songs like The Whole of the Law and Another Girl on Another Planet. Did you have them already or did you did you write them for the band? Or uh, They were written after, after the band got together. Right. Um... The band got together, like I said, Alan, we found him August the 13th, 1976. And we did some demos in September, a month later. Mm. And a lot of those tracks came out on Remains, which was like, came out after we'd broken up. And it was like leftovers right. of sort of demos and yeah. outtakes and various stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no... I, I wrote Whole of the Law and Another Girl on Another Planet after we got together. Right. And they were both recorded in the summer of 77. We we had... First thing we, we put out was in March 77, Lovers of Today. Right. And I think we were one of the first people that put stuff out on, on our own label. Yeah. And we pressed 500 copies and sent them... We didn't have a PR person, right? We just sent them to... There used to be four weekly music papers, um, The Enemy, Melody Maker, Sounds and Record Mirror. And we sent them to them and all in the same week, it was like single of the week in all four, all wow. four papers. So, you know, it was a great time. Top of the world. Yeah. Well, it was a great time to be a, a, an unknown musician because, yeah. you know, you had access to to vehicles that could actually get your music across to a, a large audience. Because mm. back in those days, most young people's outlet was to go to gigs, listen to music. You know, unlike today when there's lots of distractions like, mm. you know, computers and and phones and you know, mm. video games and stuff. Back then, it was a, a different time, and so it was very easy if you were making great music to connect with an audience. And, you know, after we were single of the week, we noticed that people were queuing up at our gigs, you know. Mm. Seymour Stein, who owned Sire Records, was in the middle of a queue outside our next gig, you know. Yeah, um, yeah it was a very privileged time. You know, if, if it wasn't for then, probably no one would have ever heard of me at all, you know, because <laughs> I'd have just stayed in a room. Right. But it was, it was intoxicating because 
you know, you felt that um, it justified your existence, the fact that people started telling you you were great. And, um, yeah. But you were propelled there by good songs. I mean, it wasn't, it's not like, it, it's because the record, the music you were making was really good though as well. Yeah, to me. I mean, I made I, music that I liked, so I thought it was amazing because, yeah. like, you know, I'd n I could never, ever think, oh, what would people like? Mm. Um, uh, I think that's, like, a contradiction in terms of, of like, being a, an artist that's true to yourself, you know. Mm. You know, you can, for me, I can only make records that are records that I would choose to make. Yeah. And if it coincides with a few people, you know, I mean... I. Like I said, when I was young, when I liked the Velvet Underground, no one else liked them. So I'm used to people not really getting the things that I I, I right. like. You know, yeah. so yeah. it was a nice surprise that all of a sudden we were the next big thing for a year. You know. Yeah. Uh, were you aware of punk at that time around you? Because you didn't sound punk at all. But yeah, I mean, but no. you kind of you could fit, fit in with the aesthetic a bit, but not really. Well, obviously, was... I was aware of it because like we knew Malcolm and Vivian since about '74. So like all the people that they were friends with. We used to get invites to all the early Pistols gig. Mm. So um saw the Pistols a few times, like in 75, 76, mm. and um, really enjoyed it on a entertainment level. You know, mm. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen because mm. I liked the fact that the audience that they were playing to hated them <laughs> and they didn't give a shit. And it was just a nice dynamic, you know. Mm. Um and then, yeah, I mean, I became friends with, you know, Johnny Thunders from the Heartbreakers. So I had a connection to lots yeah. of the leading movers of the punk movement. Yeah. Um, but like, like the name of the band, the only ones, I always wanted to be an individual. So I would always try and do the opposite of what was fashionable. Yeah. Um, so... You know, whereas everybody's covers were black and white and stark and, you know, I wanted to have coloured flowers on, on the cover of um, Another Girl on Another Planet. You know, CBS didn't want to spend the money on full colour, so they fucked it up in the, you know, what record companies <laughs> did in those days and yeah. probably still do. Yeah, they probably do. <laughs> and But then, so, were you... Did you feel like you were hit? Like, did you feel like when... Was Another Girl on Another Planet an actual hit? No, Another Girl on Another Planet never got onto the Radio 1 playlist. Why was that? Um, probably because it like, had a 32-bar intro, so it was like one minute of lead guitar before the song even started. You know, like that people say, oh, you should get to the chorus within a certain... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a formula. I don't know if it was that. and I didn't really care because we had a great live following. You know, back then you could... You know, we used to play like 250 gigs a year. And we built up, and you know, we had much more people come to our gigs, and lots of people who we were on top of the pops all the time. Because we were a great live band. Um, yeah, no. I, so, on your own terms, you felt like you were a success. And, oh yeah, because yeah. like you know, we like by the, you know, to begin with, you know, like it's like you're playing to people, and it's like a confrontation. Mm. You know, you just want to go out and make a, a really horrible noise and annoy people. But then when people start telling you you're great, you actually want to be musical. So, like, by the time of 79, 1980, it's a great feeling you know, knowing that the gigs are going to be full. Right, yeah. And th that was the most important thing to me, was playing to people at, at gigs. Um, but then by 1980, it's almost pretty much over. Yeah, yeah, because, like, we... <laughs> so just when, you, just when you're thinking this is great. And... Yeah, because, you know... I, it's like a cliche, isn't it? That you know, people stop talking to each other and start believing um, that they're you know really important. Um, and you know, we broke up at the end of a, a really chaotic American tour, which lots of bands do. Supporting the Who, this is yeah, yeah. We supported the Who, and um, then we got thrown off of that. You know, we we played like the first eight gigs was it we played San Diego then seven gigs in LA you know like wow. you know really enormous gigs yeah. um, and we'd booked a 30 date tour of our own to start when the Who's tour finished but right. because we got thrown off of it early what did you do to get thrown off it I don't know it's just you know 
who knows how these these important people think? Do you know what I mean? Um, right. I, 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 you know, I heard that it happened to other bands a lot quicker. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the Pretenders lasted two gigs. I think. Right. But uh, you know, I mean, they, they these people sort of exist in a rarefied atmosphere, you know. Right. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to say anything horrible. Were you disruptive? No, not at all. I mean. Did you eat their rider? I, 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 I might have appeared surly because I didn't like the fact that we could only use like 10% of the, of the PA. So basically we were so quiet that you could hear the front row talking above us, you know. And then when they came on, John Entwistle's first bass note was like 100 <laughs> times louder than us. Right. You know, I mean, that sort of thing. That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, maybe I gave the impression I wasn't happy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. This is Q Presents The Making Of. But anyway, so you come off, the, you got kicked off that, and then so you didn't start your. your yeah, third so we had a lot of time on our hands, and people got into, you know, like to. But wait two of in, you in LA. Smack and one of you wasn't like that's. Um, that's yeah, how, that's yeah, why. Yeah, John. Yeah, John, and you know, I. Yeah, it's boring talking about drugs because it's so childish. Mm. Um, but yeah, you can get into trouble easily, mm. and um, and. You know, we waited around until the tour started. Did played San Francisco, where had a slight problem, and then escaped to New York, but then had to leave to come back to England because right. um, things got a bit scary. <laughs> In what respect? Well, the, I don't know. There was just just misunderstanding, and you know, we got we were in a hotel in in New York and got a phone call from CBS saying that um, that they'd promised I'd go back to San Francisco otherwise they were going to start extradition proceedings and I just thought it's too complicated to sort out so it's best safer off back in London right yeah so you just scarpered yeah and then when you go back to London what was, so then you're sort of so, facing so before that so we went in the hotel in New York yeah. Alan had come into my room and said I'm leaving the band Right, okay. and uh, part of it was because we'd sort of not got on that well for a while. Although I didn't think it was a problem, I th- you know I thought we were going to go on forever. Um, but and part of it was um, he was the person that didn't take any drugs at all, didn't drink, and the chaos got to him a little bit. And also, he's fallen in love with a girl from LA and. You know, just wanted to go in a different direction with his life. Sounds reasonable. And so, you know, I just said, my immediate reaction was, yeah, I was going to leave anyway, (laughs) as you do. You know, if if, you know, if a girlfriend breaks up with you, you say, well, you know, you you were rubbish anyway. I I never never took you seriously in the first place. Um, You know, you don't get on your hands and knees and beg. No. Well, you don't. And so you went back to London. And I didn't then because no. I was like arrogant, you know. I yeah. was like the arrogance of youth, you know. Obviously, yeah. everybody regretted splitting up, but mm. no one contacted anybody else to actually talk about, you know, maybe. You know, because if we'd have had a, a year's sabbatical, you know, we could have got back together and made great music again. Yeah. But yeah. the longer it went on, you know, without music, I tended to escape in other diff- different more harmful ways yeah and yeah it was like 27 years before the three of them came around to to my place and dragged yeah. me out of the house on to, onto a stage which i wasn't really prepared for in 2007 you know? no yeah so you did that for a couple of years though yeah you didn't really enjoy it uh, i enjoyed it because like you know when we played shepherd's bush empire the first time you know it was packed you know the grown men with tears running down so i enjoyed it mm. It's nice to be able to give people pleasure. Yeah. You know, and, you know, it's something that makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're being a productive member of society. Um, but so for, yeah, for those moments, it was okay. But, you know, I, I, I can appreciate why nostalgia is a big thing, you know, it's like a security blanket from these troubled times, mm. going back to a time where th- things 
seemed much more positive and there was hope for the future. Mm. Um, but it's never been a sufficient enough reason to actually play music again. You know, unless you're doing something new, I can't see the point. Mm. And um, it's only when I, I got my head right, as... <laughs> Hmm. As the warden from Cool Hand Loop would say, <laughs> um, that you know, I realised that I wanted to write songs again, and then that was you know, snapped me out of my inertia. As the second plane entered your skin, I felt a chill come from within. When people realise there's no justice in this world. Because there is a long gap, isn't there, between 1980 and that 2007. I mean, you did have one thing. Well, you got hepatitis B, didn't you? you got yeah, that yeah. Badly. I got that in the last tour of America, which was like, you know. I mean, people didn't know about those things. I mean, luckily, I didn't get AIDS. No one knew about right, AIDS yeah. then either. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it was just reckless of abandon of being on tour and thinking that you're indestructible. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, so I was ill for the whole 80s, really. It right. wasn't until I, I got clean at the end of the 80s that my liver function came back to normal. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, Sort of a, so that's the whole 80s basically just yeah, yeah. wiped out <laughs> and then I got clean at the beginning of the 90s and made an album but then slipped back into you know what made you get clean in the, at the well, 90s I, just I music. sort of I, I was because I was so ill I mean when I first got it I was like completely bright yellow lost a stone and a half in weight which I couldn't really afford to lose <laughs> and um, that's hard to imagine yeah yeah like, six stone is not pretty um, and and then you know because I had to get clean just because because mm. I was you know throughout the eighties the hepatitis really affected me badly but I was still using hard drugs which meant that if I didn't sleep I would go yellow again and start getting nauseous and um, but when you take hard drugs you don't want to sleep mm. you know you. you and so, like, I was, like, having to force myself... And it was just, like, a, um, a battle between the person who wanted to use hard drugs but the person that didn't want to be nauseous all the time. And um, sort of self-preservation, I actually stopped using hard drugs. Right. And um, mm. by magic, my liver function returned to normal. Incredible. And so, you know, I was able to to feel okay and um, as soon as I s stopped taking hard drugs I started writing songs again so this is 2011-ish this is onwards oh no no the, the, oh back then the, yeah, in the, the, 90s, the end, right? of the, end of the 80s so you had a brief window didn't you, when you wrote a songs, brief yeah. window so I, I was in a band called The One from 94 uh, we did uh, an EP called Cultured Palette yeah and then did a, an album called Woke Up Sticky, which came out in 96. Autobiographical title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah. that's the sort of thing that happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of like nod out and then you wake up because like you've been eating marshmallows. And like the time you nod out, the marshmallows all melt in your mouth. But then your face ends up in an ashtray. So you wake up and you've got all these cigarette butts and ash stuck to your face. So, it's, you know, it's entertaining. I used yeah. to amuse myself quite a lot. Yeah. But so you got clean, you did this record. What sucked you back into the dark to the dark side? Um, it was Christmas 96. Like, we did... Um, after the record came out in, in the summer of 96, and we did... Um, like, there was a three-page interview in the Daily Telegraph, of all things... Mm. And then the next day we played the Connect Festival. Not the Connect Festival, the Phoenix Festival. Phoenix Festival, Phoenix yes. Festival. And um, then we did the Richard Littlejohn show. <laughs> do, you right. know, do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Okay. Yeah, we were great on that. Right. Like, um, Tony Parsons was on it. Right. 
I mean, he was like, part of there was Tony Parsons, Frank Bruno, and Norman Wisdom. <laughs> they were the guests, you know. And you were the musical turn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Tony Parsons said, Planet sounds as good as it ever did. So, right. yeah. And then we did um, uh, a TV show in, in Paris for Canal Plus. Um, then in December, we did is, um, a club in Amsterdam called the Melkweg. Right, yeah. And they had their Christmas party and we played at that. Mm. And that was the last gig we did. And then it was Christmas and I thought, oh, I'll celebrate Christmas by, you know, just like, you know, you tend to celebrate things in yeah. the ways that you used to think yeah. celebrations were, yeah. were held. Um, and then I never phoned any of the other members again. <sighs> and, oh, my God. Uh, and then, and after that, it, that's when it got really bad after 96 and... Yeah, you know, I, I was convinced that I would never, ever feel the urge to pick up a guitar again. Right. Where is Zena in all this? Zena's with me. Right, she's side. on your journey. Yeah, she's on my journey. I mean, she resisted it for quite a while. Right. Uh, you know, through all the times of the only one she didn't touch drugs at all. Um, it was only after the band split up. Right. That, and... Um, we had our, our first child, uh, not our first child, our second child taken away from us. Right. Um, that's when she resorted to drugs as an escape because that is the greatest pain that a human being can experience, I think, is having your child taken away. I mean, obviously, if your child dies, that's a more permanent thing. Yeah. But in a way, when they're taken away and you know they're alive and you can't yeah. get them, that's just as bad uh, yeah. in a way. Did you get them back? Yeah, yeah. It yeah, took, exactly. took six months after. From the moment he was born until he was six months old, and that, that's when you're meant to bond. Right. Okay. Um, you know, the child's meant to bond with its mother. Right. Um, but, yeah, we were together enough to to actually fight it properly in court, you know, which lots of people just want to escape from the pain right. and never get the child back. Well, this kind of brings us up to date in a way because it's through the urging of your children that you started making music again, is it? Or yeah, food? yeah. Well, they helped you along. Tell us about that. Because, you know, they're, for their sins, um, they discovered music at an early age and there were, like, lots of unused instruments around which they amused themselves with. Right. Um, but they didn't, you know, we were sort of um, normally locked away in a room. And so, you know, I used to hear this, these noises come from the, the front room. And they became good at what they were doing and, you know, had the same passion as me. Mm. And so when they saw me getting healthy again and communicating, they started urging me to come up and join them because they rehearsed in our sort of living room kitchen. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's like free, we don't charge them for rehearsing there. <laughs> and, you know, they just started urging me to come up at the end of their rehearsals and have a play. Right. And, um, yeah, because yeah. they, they, they actually like seeing me um, justifying my existence, you know, because yeah. for, for ages they, they... I suppose it must have been painful for the... For, children seeing their parents in um not living you know yeah and so like we communicate because because we play music together there's a reason to see each other all the time and uh yeah. you know at the end of life to actually have so much contact with your children it is a real uh, something I, I never dreamed of uh, and i can't imagine um it's a nice way, you know, I'm sure they'll come to my funeral. It's a happy ending. Yeah, happier yeah, ending yeah. Anyway. Like I miss my parents' funerals, but, you know, that's why I don't really deserve their love, but um, it manifests itself in the best way possible, producing um, music that I'm proud of. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. So did, did they produce it with you did, or did you produce it or who's who's uh, in charge well, who's I, I, in charge I wrote this on the, the last album human world well the, the album that came out yeah. three weeks ago is it yeah. three weeks um i wrote all the songs apart from one um jamie wrote one of the songs called master of destruction 
and Jamie produced the album. Okay. Which saved us a lot of money because it's much cheaper than that. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, he produced the album because like, I think that was the way we, we make, could make the best album. Yeah. Not just because he was cheap, you know. This is the thing. I mean, I I, also I play with them. I play with them because like they're the best bass player and the best guitarist that for interpreting my songs because they know where they're coming from. They yeah. they spent their whole lives with me. They know all the ins and outs of my various peccadilloes and you know everything that makes me tick. And you know they interpret it musically. Yeah. How do you take direction from? your son producing from Jamie producing it. He lets me think I'm getting my way. Yeah, and then he just uh, changes it. Yeah, because yeah. he knows my hearing's bad, so he can sneak <laughs> things in and I don't notice it till it's too late. Yeah. Okay, and you're accepting of that? Yeah, yeah, because, like, he's got great taste. They, they've both got great taste. I don't have to, you know, they just come up with what's perfect for the songs. When they were in Baby Shambles, did you... Did you go see Baby Shambles did you yeah I did I did yeah yeah I did I did <laughs> well, <laughs> what did no, you think of <laughs> yeah. you know, well they're my kids obviously yeah. I'm gonna you know they, they weren't know, destined to be you know they weren't destined to be the perfect Baby Shambles members right um, who is I mean it's quite a tough job yeah. <laughs> uh, well you know they weren't although you know Jamie was a big fan of the Libertines and um Peter was the first person that was asked to join the band. Mm. And then somehow I got involved because I kept inviting me to stuff. And um, and with me came Jamie as well. Mm. Um, yeah, they, they weren't destined to be, because they weren't impressed by that lifestyle. Mm. They'd seen enough of it. And There's no romance there yeah, for them. No romance at all. They'd seen it. That's good. <laughs> Save my glass of water for yeah. and over, thank you. <laughs> well, it was like leaning Tower of Pisa, and I thought <laughs> gravity might yeah, end up prevail. with... Yeah, and there's lots of electrical stuff, which... Yeah. Uh, Saved my life. Yeah, I know, I'm such a, a good citizen. Uh, <laughs> so they'd seen, the, they'd seen the sticky end of... Uh, the, yeah, they knew that there was not so much romance. Yeah, in, yeah, in so, I don't, you know... I, don't think they were what Pete was ultimately looking for in a band. So they only lasted like three months or, or yeah. something. Yeah, did right you, at the beginning of Baby Shem. Did it you was. knock about with Pete at all? Yeah, yeah, he came and stayed for a while. And um, What sort of house is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it wasn't a... I've got some fond memories. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, who am I to judge though and criticise? You know, I, I've uh, my life has not been lived without blemish. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't like sort of saying bad things about people because, you know, there's a lot worse people in the world. Yeah, you know, and there's lots of nastier psychopaths in the world. Yeah, <laughs> nastier. Okay, and will there be a third album? Do you think to really capitalise on this spurt? This I, that is one thing that I would never commit to because, right. like, you know, people say, oh, I'm doing something in October, could you, do you want to come? And I say, October? Like, yeah. you know, I don't know if I'm going to be alive next week, you know. Like, when you pass the age of 60, like, you enter the twilight zone where nothing is really that real that you can count on waking up the next morning. Yeah. Everything is, every day is a bonus. Right. So, you know. Glad you've got this pod done then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, good job you turned up on time. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, in, in theory, you wouldn't mind doing a third. Yeah, one. yeah, it, you know, in theory, life is around. life is theory, isn't it? <laughs> like, is there life before death? It, it's just yeah, yeah okay. it's theoretical. And all right, then let's go to let's go to one final question about this uh, about your epic journey. Um, if you could turn back time, as you suggested in an epic story. What lesson would you teach the twenty-year-old Peter Parrot? Okay, I, this somebody asked me that. Oh, really? I thought, yeah, I, th I think it might Damn. have been Tom Doyle, the person that interviewed. Oh, I'm really? Not, yeah, I'm not sure. They interviewed Damn me for, for this Tom week's Q. Right. Um, I guess it's just an obvious thing. To yeah, no, I, th I try and remember what I said to him. Oh, I think, think of something new. <laughs> Push the boat out. No, but it's hard to. 
it's hard to think of anything because I know that I would never have listened to anything that anybody my age would have said. Exactly. Yeah. I, when you're, you're 25, you, you, you think you know it all, you know. Yeah. It's like, and, yeah. you know, you think you're indestructible. So I would have tried to give me the advice about not taking hard drugs until you reach the age of 60, and that's when you really need them mm. because it would be good to maintain your drug virginity so that mm. the transition from being healthy and alive to suddenly getting all these ailments, that's when you need hard drugs. <laughs> to soften the blow yeah, a bit. to yeah. soften the blow of old age. Yeah. And so I'm having to, to face old age in a pristine mental condition. And it's, you know, it's a trial, trials and tribulations of, yeah. of being a human being, but it's what makes life unpredictable and exciting. You know, you've got to be able to cry as well as laugh. And that's the main main thing I, I try and teach the 25-year-old me is that if you take hard drugs, you will stop crying and you'll stop laughing. And without those two things, life is pretty numb. Wow. Lovely stuff, Peter. We're going to do something that's... So, that's yeah, this biscuit that's, that's, thing. That's, that's <laughs> neither laughing nor crying. <laughs> it's the biscuit thing, which is a random questions. Just uh, go one at a time. This is not a biscuit tin at all. It's just a, a shitty old paper bag that he's trying to... I don't to think you should destroy the magic. <laughs> right, so I'll take listener. out one piece of paper. Who's going to read it for me? Because, like, I haven't oh, got... Yeah. Uh, I, I, I haven't glasses with me. Do you... Yeah, I'll read it. Oh, it. Okay. okay. How do you relax? How do I relax? It's very easy for me to relax. My, my brain is very well trained to empty at the merest hint of danger so if I find myself getting tense or, or angry I can just completely switch off hmm. it's, it's like you know I've That's a good dedicated trick. sort of decades to learning how to do it and uh, now it's something that comes naturally to me far out wish they come naturally to me pick another one out please Oh, it's a big one. <laughs> it's a big piece of paper, not big, a big question. No, it's the meaning of life. Is, you know? Well, it's along those lines. What do you consider the most overrated virtue? Every time. Most, it's not that's because it's the biggest that's one in there. I yeah. mean, all the others are tiny bits of paper. Like, I'm going to mix up it's, a little That's not fair, because obviously everyone's going to pick that. That's not fair. Well, it's not, because yeah. it's like it's 20 times as big, the piece of I'll paper. I'll cut that down. I'm going to cut that one down. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was it? What, what do you consider the most overrated virtue? Oh, God, that is hard. First of all, I've got to try and work out what a virtue is. Like, yeah. What a virtue to me is, like, <laughs> probably the opposite to other people. Um, That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it makes it very difficult for me to answer because right. my, my, my judgments are completely inverted, I think. Go on, give it a bash, though. <laughs> <laughs> give it a bash. Oh, God. Wealth. Lots of people in the modern world think that that is something that, to aspire to. And, um, yeah. That's good. <laughs> That's a good one. Do you have a mobile phone? This is not the question. Uh, I have a mobile phone, but I don't take it with me anywhere. My... my my manager explains that's why they're called mobile phones because he gets annoyed <laughs> if he can't contact me. But, you know, I'm not a slave to anything. I'm going to get rid of that question. It's, the, it's what's the last text message you were sent? I just think that's like, <laughs> who cares? Oh, you chose this. I thought I was meant to choose them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's cheating. He's... You're doing your own Sorry, I was just getting into it. <laughs> no one ever asked me to do it. I just do it. <laughs> I think this is where it ch turns around. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you do it, and I, I'll ask yeah. you. Yeah, that's another big one. I'm, I'm going to find a little one in there. That's it. Oh, this is a terrible one. Sorry. <laughs> if you had to be stuck on a desert island, one other pop star or musician, who would that be? Oh God. Well, it couldn't be Bob Dylan because uh, if you're stuck on a desert island, it's someone you're going to end up hating them. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> oh God. It has to be female, but I, I'm <laughs> going 
<laughs> I'm going to be very unpolitically correct. Yeah. Um, I think the singer from the Divinals, I think. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Keep yourself busy. That's the idea, right? <laughs> one last one. This is just to uh, keep us going. Oh, are you scared of going bald? Yes, I am. Because my hair's been falling out for the last two years. And, you know, because my hair was really thick. Right. Um, it didn't wor worry me to begin with because I had so much anyway to, you know. And then it started getting really serious. And I went to find it because I don't go to the doctor unless I'm dead or in extreme pain. That's the only time I hate going to the doctor because you have to book up like weeks in advance. You know, yeah. it's really. And yeah. um, so I went and had a blood test because they, they wanted to find out whether it was a thyroid problem, lack of iron. Then I went back. And they said, oh, we've lost the blood tests. And just, I just thought, well, that's your fault. That's not my yeah. fault. So, but I'm thinking of going again, yeah. No, it is a problem, you know. Because, like, <laughs> I never, normally if people start going bald, they do it, uh, you know, before they get into the 60s. Yeah. And so, like, I was very confident that it wouldn't happen. But, yeah, no, I'm terrified. <laughs> because, like, you know, I won't be pretty anymore. And, like, oh. you know, at the age of 67, you know, expect to be pretty, don't you? Yeah. Peter, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. All that remains is, is for me to thank producer Sue Barrowman for excellent production and good vibes and to thank you all for listening and to ask you politely to rate and review us uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, whatever device it is, whatever platform, because that, all those likes make a big difference and keep us going, really. So thank you very much, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye. And that's it. That's okay. it. We've done it. All you have to do now, you have to do us an ident. Do you know what that is? You just say... I've got, I've got my suspicions. You just I, got, I, my name is Peter Perrier and I... No, you always just say, uh, uh, this is, just say the name of the podcast, which is... Uh, this is, uh, is just Q Presents the Making Of. Q Presents the Making Of. I actually forgot the name of the podcast then. Okay. My name is Peter Perrier and this is Q Presents the Making Of. That one has dynamite. That was amazing. Yeah, that's that beautiful. Like, you owned that one.